Blog Talk Radio. for tuning in. I am your host, T-Love, here at From the Heart Radio and the founder and CEO 
of Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to providing underprivileged children with the basic necessities of life. I'm also a board-certified integrated holistic health energy psychology, positive psychology, and energy and vibrational sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where From the Heart Radio streams to you live each and every week, bringing you optimistic and uplifting information from interesting people. We bring you the people who are making a positive impact in our world. Today, our guest is Rob Bolpe, a thought leader in the role of empathy in marketing and the workplace. He's the CEO of Ignite360. He leads a team of insights, strategy, and creative professionals serving the world's leading brands across an entire range of industries. He's a graduate of Syracuse University's SI Newhouse School of Public Communications, and he's been studying empathy since 2010 when a University of Michigan study came out showcasing the empathy crisis. Rob is also the author of Tell Me More About That, Solving the Empathy Crisis, One Conversation at a Time, and that is our topic for discussion. So welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you so much for taking time to be here. It's a pleasure to have you join us on From the Heart Radio. How are you being? Thank you, T-Love. It's so great being here uh, today. Thank you for having me on. And I'm uh, in sunny San Francisco, so I'm, I'm having a great day. I'm being well. It's usually sunny there, I understand. I don't know. I've never been, <laughs> but it sounds like a great place to be. <laughs> it's a quintessential California day of sunshine and, you know, clear skies. And one of the days where you go, oh, yeah, this is why I live here. Yes. The things that those of us in New Jersey and on the East Coast think, ah, California dreaming. What a wonderful place it must be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, you know, your book, tell me more about that, Solving the Empathy Crisis, One Conversation at a Time. First of all, I need to thank you so much for both your personal note and inscribing your book to me. I love it when authors sign their books. It's, it's very rare and even more rare when it's personalized to me. So it's always a surprise, and I just find it to be so very thoughtful. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> well, you're you're I, uh, so welcome. I, I'm I find it surprising that people wouldn't do that more often. Um, it just seems kind of natural to me that, of course, when I have the opportunity to inscribe a book to somebody who's interested, wants to take a moment to read it and hear my stories and learn about empathy, of course I want to sign it and write a note. It was them. great. But it was, it was so, so wonderful to see it. that. Yeah, I, I smiled from ear Thank to ear. You. It was wonderful. My heart smiled, too, so that was great. I absolutely loved your book. I've wanted to speak to empathy for quite some time, but – not in, in, in the way that most people wanted to present it. And what I found about your book, tell me more about that, it is completely devoted to empathy. It's not a chapter amongst other topics. And the way in which you speak to empathy, as well as the stories, the very real stories, the personal stories that you provide as examples, it really makes it easy for the reader to understand what empathy is and why it's so very much needed especially, I guess, in our world today where it's severely lacking. So having said that, and before we get into the content of the book itself, I'd really like to start with a bit of background, if we may. So would you share sure. with our listeners what it was about that University of Michigan study showcasing the empathy crisis that drove you to study empathy to the extent that you've actually written a book about it? And I will add a book that is so well written and so clear 
it's just it, you can tell the research that you've done and everything you've really you really nailed it so what what was the catalyst for that how did you come to study that and do that what was it thank you yeah the the study came out in 2010 and they had looked at a team of researchers at the University of Michigan had looked at student life surveys and they went back to 1979 there were 76 different universities that they reviewed and they looked at the question of how people were responding to, can you um, see the point of view of your peers, your classmates? And so from 1979 to 2001, they found a 40% decline in people's ability to have that empathy, to have that perspective taking with their peers. And then it stayed at that reduced level from 2001 until the study ended in 2009. And the study came out, I remember seeing it on CNN, that's how I found out about it, and you know, standing in an airport and thinking, watching this on the screen and going, oh my God, somebody, and this is 2010, so somebody that was in college in 2001, at that point would have been in their like late 20s, early 30s. Today would be in their early 40s. And like they're already out in the world. They're they're you know contributing to society. Their colleagues, their managers, their neighbors, their parents and partners, and they have less empathy. And that's really not good for how we interact and get along with each other. And and you don't have to look very far to to see that. Um, what was also concerning was that that was playing, you know, and there I am in some airport somewhere in the U.S., and, like, at the bar, you know, where the TV is also playing the same story, no one's paying attention, they're having drinks waiting for mm -hmm. their flight, <laughs> other people are racing through the airport running to get their flight, and it just felt like this sort of Cassandra moment where I was like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is not good, this is a problem, and we need to do something about this, and, and that's what really drove that, that impetus, and then through the work that I do uh, at Ignite 360, and, and this has actually happened before I even founded the company, but you know, we're in the business of understanding how people think and feel and helping our clients connect to that so that they can build better products and services and advertising campaigns. And we would notice that you know, clients would spend a lot of money trying to get to know who their consumer is, but they would sit and, and you know, hear the results of a survey or a study, you know, sit down, get to go on an in-home interview with someone, and they'd have all this judgment about the consumer and who they were and, and why they basically were going to disregard them. And it was effectively a lack of empathy, and I felt like that was wrong and, and something that we needed to, to correct. You know, when you mentioned that there's a, there was a 40% decline, okay, that was on the survey, 40% decline. That's, that's great that we know yep. that. But did they give a why? why? What was the reason for that decline? What caused it? They did not. Um, they they ah. did not look at that. Um, and I know. And so I've had to hypothesize and look at, okay, well, what was going on in society over those yeah. 30 years or 25, 30 years? And there's a lot of different factors. I don't think there's any one, you know, uh, event that suddenly deprived us of our, our empathy abilities. But Instead, it was this combination of everything from globalization and, and suddenly we're interacting with people from different places and it can be different places within the United States, but we're not contained in our little picket fence communities like we used to be. So there's globalization, there's 
our relationship to technology, the way that you know we have so many different screens. And then there's the social media piece of it, um, but there's also then the way kids are getting raised. I'm 54, so I grew up in the 70s and 80s and the latchkey kid, and I remember coming home from school, and my sister and I would have to, you know, we were responsible for getting our homework done and doing this and that. And if we were bored, we'd have to play a game and, and mom would send us into the backyard or up to our room if we were bored. And, and when you're bored, you end up going into imaginative play, creative play. And that actually helps right. build empathy skills and build up that empathy muscle. So that was going on. Political uh, division really got going in the 90s um, with the Clinton administration versus the Gingrich Congress. And, you know, it, it started to become this zero-sum game, winner-takes-all. Um, reality TV was starting to, to become popular in the late 90s, early 2000s. Again, winner-takes-all. It's not about helping each other out. So a lot of different things were happening and, and sending us messages and signals and, in some cases, depriving us of the opportunities to, to strengthen our empathy muscle. Um, and it's something yeah. that we have to practice in order to keep it strong. Absolutely you do. And, you know, empathy has been, uh, I think I shall say, bastardized over the past, I don't know, 15 to 20 years perhaps. There's been a misunderstanding around empathy and what it truly means to be empathic or empathetic. And part of the difficulty of defining empathy is that it comprises multiple components, you know, and that creates confusion as well as a lack of understanding. So your book, Tell Me More About That, explains the components in a way that really makes sense and clarifies the confusion. You write about the five steps to empathy. And before we get into those, I'd like to know if you would tell people, because I think people confuse empathy with compassion and sympathy. They don't really know that there's a true difference between those three words. They're not synonyms. So if you would tell us how you define empathy. Absolutely. So to me, empathy is, um, a connection that you're building with another person, seeing their either perspective or feeling the feelings that they're feeling as best you can as them. So, you know, the colloquial walking a mile in someone else's shoes. Um, but there's a lot within that. And I do quite a lot of keynote presentations and trainings around empathy now. And uh, I often, uh, the first part of it is all just demystifying empathy because there is all this confusion. It isn't sympathy. Those are two different things. It, you know, there's cognitive empathy, which is the perspective taking, as well as the emotional empathy, um, you know, and compassion. And this is an interesting one. And, and there's confusion around where, compa- is compassion its own thing or is there compassionate empathy and I believe you actually have to have empathy in order to get to a point of acting compassionately. Um, so there's, there's so much to clarify for people. And, you know, we have a lot of things on our plates and things to do. So, you know, not many people have spent the time really kind of exploring and unpacking it. So I try to clarify some of those things for people so that they can appreciate it and have the tools um, to use to try to be more empathetic themselves. And I think you do a great job at that because you do use personal stories, which, you know, I mean, some of them are kind of funny. (laughs) And I mean, I was laughing through the book because I thought, oh, yeah, I do that. (laughs) (laughs) And you don't think you're being judgmental. And, you know, and 
and to, to be fair, it's like a lot of times, I mean, we do have, you know, a brain that says fight, flight, or freeze. And given that, we yep. know that when we're using our brain, you know, you're in a situation, you pull up somewhere, your job, and you don't even realize it's your job, is to assess your surroundings. And as you're assessing and evaluating, you know, you're making judgments on what you're seeing and how you could respond if, in fact, A, B, or C happens. That's the world we live in. But that's also part of our function. That's part of our, our brain. That's how we work. So the amygdala does this for us. So yes. I think that when you read your book, it's so interesting because you actually give stories that resonate with people and, and explain in a way that we can all relate to a similar story in our own life and kind of laugh about it or just say, oh, wow, and it kind of, it kind of hits you. It's not a sucker punch, but it kind of hits your soul, and you say, oh, yeah, I know I've done that. You know, so that's what the beauty is of the book. It really explain, explains empathy in a way that makes sense and is very real and not being used as an excuse or to show uh, superiority to other people. And I, and I liked that a yeah. lot. So, yeah, that Thank was you. that was really good. Oh, you're quite welcome. I mean, you did a good job. I'm telling you, there's not a lot of people who have written about empathy in the way that you have, and it just makes sense and clarifies it and shows that, that we're all human. This is what we have, and here it, here it is, something that we can practice so that we can make the world a better place for everyone in an easy way. And the way to practice it is just with every interaction, be more aware. But having said that, um, there was an well, I'll get into this down the road. I'll ask you this first. So we go to the five steps. Let's start with that. And the first step okay. we have is judgment, which I just spoke to. <laughs> you know, we all think that we're doing okay when we're assessing or evaluating, but technically we kind of are judging, right? Yeah, and, and I, what I try to clarify for people is that there's a difference between making a judgment, which is what you described um, and what we do instinctively through the amygdala and when we arrive and are we going to, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. Um, but then there's the being judgmental and the casting aspersion. And I think it, it probably is coming mm -hmm. out somewhere from the amygdala, but it ends up us casting an aspersion against somebody else and all of the um, you know, stereotypes and past experiences and biases that we have, those all start to come to the forefront. And, um, you know, it, that's where we have a choice in how we're going to behave. I, I, I would never tell somebody don't make a choice to you know, not walk down a dark alley if you don't feel safe somewhere. Like, that is a judgment you need to be making. But you don't need to um, be judgmental about somebody because of their appearance or you don't like the way that they're, they're, you know, the clothes that they're wearing or the color of their skin or the you know, nature of their hair, whatever it might be. That's all being judgmental. Um, and that's what we try to, to dismantle and need to dismantle if we hope to get through and get to a place of, of empathy. Um, I was talking to a, a former client yesterday, and she just finished reading the book, and she said yeah, she'd been out on these in-home interviews with me, and, and you know, some of the stories that I tell in the book are from those experiences where I was very other in that moment and had to work to overcome my judgment, or, or a lot of times I didn't. And it was through that she said, you know, she had been with me out in the field before and just thought I was this, you know, it just came so naturally to me that I, I wasn't having all these judgments thoughts 
then she read the book and she said it was such a relief to realize that, no, I have those things too. And I wrestle with that. And, and yeah, I'm human. Of course I do. Um, but I felt like it was important to share those stories in the book because a, some of them are entertaining, as you mentioned, um, but they mm-hmm. also help people like, gives everyone permission. Like it's okay. We're human. We're learning. And it's about trying to do better. Uh, rather than trying to put ourselves up on some pedestal or something. And I like that you said that because it does give everybody the opportunity to realize that you're human and you do it and we can all be better. That's really great. I know that there are many times over the past, I don't know, let's say pre-COVID, let's say five, six years, where things that happen on TV, we're all judging it. We're all judging it. We're all saying, what, what the heck is wrong with you? put it nicely and you know when things are happening on tv we're watching gun violence we're watching political things we're watching uh, all, all this junk that's happening in the world and we are judging it all and it's hard to find empathy in those instances it's also hard to find empathy when something is happening and it's becoming a a movement if i can say that for instance the other day i think it was monday it had to be monday and I'm working out and I'm watching Good Morning America and I hear them talk about this new thing called Bare Minimum Monday. I'm like, what's Bare Minimum Monday? What is that? Well, apparently some of the younger people can't go to work on Monday and expect to be giving 100% because, you know, they're tired from the weekend and they need, you know, poor them. And so they want to do Bare Minimum. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, are you freaking kidding me? I'm like, go to work and do your job. What's wrong? you i'm literally yelling at the tv and i'm like this is not a good way to do a workout i could hurt myself (laughs) but seriously bare minimum monday on top of the fact that i i absolutely know people who have told me yes i had somebody come in and apply for a job the job is nine to five they didn't want to work nine to five they wanted to work like 12 to nine because they get up at 11 or something like what did you do i didn't I didn't hire them, and they were upset and said it was discrimination. I said, that's not discrimination. I'm sorry. These children have been coddled. They've been coddled and told, it's okay. You can do whatever you – and that creates other people from looking at and thinking, I can't be empathetic to you because it's just sheer stupidity that you would think that the world works and revolves around you. So sometimes it is hard to do that. The people that – I should say that you did most of this research in your work, correct? You found, you learned most of this through the work that you were doing. And you were asking the questions and and being with people. And these people were probably not, you know, saying, I want to do a bare minimum Monday or I want to work the hours I want to work regardless of when you're open, (laughs) you know, Um, because everything seemed like they were already in a routine. Is that correct? Is my assessment of that correct? Yeah, these were the all the stories in the book come. Most of them come from um, work that I did. Yeah, going out gathering insights. So we were going into people's homes to understand their life and how they think and feel. And and naturally, in that, um, you should be in a more open place. But there are things that come up that just trigger you. And while I didn't hear about bare minimum Monday, um, you know, I I went into the NRA. Yeah, yeah, now I know, and I have thoughts on that. Look it up. Um, <laughs> but, no um, going to the the NRA gun show, for example, I'm I'm um, 
I believe in gun safety and more regulations and control, and the client wanted us to understand why people carry and conceal and get the permits and everything. And it was really eye-opening for me. Um, A, I had to be aware of all the judgment that I was carrying and, and to open myself up to listen to people. But then as I started to have conversations and listen and go, okay, take a curious breath. Let me hear what they have to say and, and where they're coming from. So, you know, kind of with the, the bare minimum Monday people, or, yeah, bare minimum Monday, if you're going to talk to somebody about that, it's like, okay, so help me understand what's going on for you and, and you know, what makes this important for you. Um, if you want to, you know, I guess if you're an employer and you have that situation coming up or your kids are saying they want to do bare minimum Monday, and you need to talk to them about it. Other times, you're gonna like yell at the TV like you did while you were working out because it's yeah. it's it is you know, be judgmental. It's a little crazy, um, yeah. You know, in the, in that moment. So we have choices to make of when we're gonna open ourselves up and and try to understand. And I think you have to think about like well, what am to what end? What am I trying to do? Like empathy isn't the end goal. I, I describe it as like this roundabout on a journey. And, you know, so you come down a road, you get to this traffic circle, that's empathy. And okay, I've, I've built empathy. And from there, I can go and collaborate with somebody if I want to figure out what the new work rules might be for bare minimum Monday, or how to get them to understand if I need to persuade them, that would be another path that no, actually, you do need to work nine to five, because that's the job. And that's what we hired you for or if you just need to communicate those rules to them, or you've got problem solving that you've got to do with them. Empathy enables all of those different things, so it really um, it empowers a lot of the skills that we use in our lives. Well, I think in it, in that moves in, us into ask good questions because you do have to ask those questions. And I will say, one of the stories that I liked a lot was the one about the cookies. <laughs> The chocolate chip cookies. The minute you started talking about those, I was like, I make Toll House cookies. Those are the best chocolate chip cookies in the world. And then you were talking about the woman said she uses Crisco. And I'm like, yep, that's what you use in Toll House cookies. And then you said salty. I'm like, it wasn't the Crisco. And then I read the line that says, I don't think it was the Crisco. I'm like, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> and I thought, it's okay to not be empathic toward a cookie. It's a cookie. <laughs> No, like I get that you were trying to be empathic toward the woman, but like it's just a cookie and it wasn't that good. She put too much salt in it. Oh well. (laughs) (laughs) These are the things I I found amusing. (laughs) And and thank you. I'm so happy to hear that because I I, I tried to write where it was appropriate for it to be amusing. I wanted I wanted people to be entertained. I wanted. I didn't want to write a book that people weren't going to read. Um, you know, and, right. and my publisher said to me, like a, a lot of books that people read the first forty pages and they stop. And I was like, that's awful. I want people to want to mm-hmm. read this. I want it to be a book. And I think, I, I honestly, um, I was just. A, told last week I'm a finalist for the Benjamin Franklin Awards, which is um, <gasps> awarded by the uh, Independent Book Publishers Association. Yes, one of the best congratulations. Of 2022. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, that's and, huge. You know, it's, that's it's, huge. Thank, thank you. Yeah. So, you know, there, so I, I, I wrote a good book um, and I yes. achieved that. I, I, one woman, one, one reader told me uh, last spring that she just, she was, upset that she was finishing the book because she was enjoying it so much. And you know, it was one of those books uh-huh. that she didn't want it to end because she was liking the stories. And 
I think, you know, that's how we learn is through entertainment and storytelling. And so that's what I was trying to do, whether it's about cookies or, you know, times that I've had to talk to people about sex and other things that make us uncomfortable. There's some really fun stories in the book. Yeah, it runs the gamut. It really does, from cookies to sex, the NRA. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. And, and including when you were speaking about your grandfather and you were saying, you know, yeah. you were sorry that you didn't get to let, have time with him and, and the, the glint in his eye. And I had to go. I, I, I actually turned the book over to look at your picture, and I'm like, yeah, you have your grandfather's glint in your eye. I guarantee it. I don't know the man, but I bet you, because you have a glint in your eye. And I thought, oh, he has a glint in his eye, you know. So, yeah, there's that, um, there's that little mischievousness uh, in there. And I'm like, hey, he'd be fun to talk to. I wouldn't mind, you know, bumping into him in a bar and just having a conversation. This would be fun. It would be a very nice evening because, because I think that you're a good conversationalist in that way that you write, you must be in person. And you're right, entertaining is learning. And that woman didn't want it to end because she wanted to continue learning. And she was getting so much out of the book that isn't offered elsewhere. That's why you're up for the award. So congratulations Thank and you. kudos yeah. to you on that. That is huge. I, Thank I hope you. you win. You Thank deserve you so much. to. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you went in. You know. Yeah, please do. Absolutely. When you. Walked into people's homes, of course, you don't know what you're walking into, you know. I mean, it could be the home of the person who was kind of a hoarder, you know, and right. or the, yeah. the home of the person where it was like, oh, my God, is this the guy from Psycho? <laughs> you know, whatever it was. Um, you had to kind of remove yourself from those, like detach. You had to, I do volunteer pediatric hospice, okay, so I have to detach. You must have had to have detached, too, so that you could ask really good questions to get to what it was that you needed to learn about this person for the products that you were, or whatever it was that you were trying to gain information for, you know, in the use of the product, I'll say. That, yes, so that's the questions what I'm supposed have to be really to good. Yeah. Yeah, the questions do have to be good. And, and um, the, the chapter, it's in the dismantle judgment section, but the chapter is called Mother Would Never Do That. Um, which is around when I went into this one person's home, we were doing a project around side dishes um, and what you make for dinner. And I let my judgment get the best of me. And I thought that I, I, I couldn't understand exactly what the guy's story was. And I became fixated on finding out what that was to the point where I wasn't asking the right questions or paying attention to what he was telling me. And so I, I, uh -huh. like, I kind of missed the whole thing. And at one point I thought he might be a serial killer. And um, <laughs> that turned out not to be the case. And then I was trying to figure out, well, what, what things aren't adding up. I was finding clues in things that I was seeing, observing, you know, that were displayed in his house. Um, and, and so, yeah, all of those things come. Asking good questions is so critical to any communication. And if you're going to try to get to empathy with somebody, you're really trying to understand where they're coming from. You want to be asking questions that are um, open, first of all, that they can't just answer with yes, no, maybe single word sort of answers. And you also don't want to lead them anyplace. You want to see where they're going to come from. Um, and sometimes there's one story, uh, one, one of the chapters in the book in Asking Good Questions called Peeling the Onion, uh, there was a woman that we were meeting. She lived in rural Alabama. 
arrived at her house, or it was actually a trailer, but on a nice big piece of property, and she was outside, and, and so we just started talking to her, and she was sharing all of her um, personal history and just started coming out, like, right away. I mean, we hadn't even really set up yet uh, to do the interview, and she started sharing everything, and at one point in the interview, I asked her, because um, I was like, what you know, her life had taken all these different twists and turns. And I was like, what did she want to be when she grew up, when she was like 18 and getting out of high school? And I, so I asked that question and she revealed that she was getting her first divorce at 18 and, you know, mm -hmm. fixing to leave her, her first husband. And it was like, oh, I, I used some judgment that was not correct of like 18. I should have had it very open, like, a more open question of, you know, when you were younger, what did you imagine your life would be like, or what did you want to be when you grew up instead of, you know, kind of fixing it. And that's just one example where I didn't ask the question in a way that it was open enough that she could really tell us. Instead, I started to hear about a really fascinating experience she had with her first husband, but it, it robbed me of hearing that bigger sort of vision of, of who Emma Jean wanted to be. Um, when she grew up and how she viewed her life. So you need to be asking good questions. I think one of the most practical tips um, that I, I share and that people really respond to is about, you know, ultimately we're all trying to understand why, why somebody did something. And the problem is when you use the word why, it puts people on the defensive. And it has from the time we were little kids and we did something wrong. And a caregiver said, why did you, you know, fill in the blank with the thing that you did wrong? And we get trained really quickly that if we don't give the right answer, um, you know, right quotation marks, if we don't give the right answer, we're going to get in trouble. So there's going to be some form of pain associated with this. And so it puts us on the defensive every time we get asked the word why. And it follows us from you know, early childhood into school, into our adult life, both at work and personally and romantically. You're always getting asked why. And instead, take the word why out of your vocabulary. Reframe the question. Use who, what, where, when, how. And just ask the question a little differently you're still going to get at the why, but you're not going to have the person you're talking with be on the defensive. And they're going to actually be more open. And they're going to be more honest with you and share what's really going on and not be in this defensive posture while they're doing it. And they'll share details too. So you'll get more of a story. Mm -hmm. Because a, a why is just you like, well, the, because, um, yeah, but you get the full story when you, when you ask the other questions. Exactly. Um, I had a mom reach out to me shortly after the book came out, and her 13-year-old uh, son was having trouble in English class. And I think, you know, he had a piece of paper she needed to sign, and it was going to force a conversation. And her initial reaction was to say, why are you having trouble in English class, as many parents would want to do. But then she realized she thought about the book and she thought about the stories in the book and she decided instead to just say, tell me more about what's going on in English class. And she said that he opened up with her in a way that he hadn't and shared a lot of what he was struggling with so that she was actually able to legitimately help him. And it was much more meaningful, drew them closer together, all because she took the word why out of her uh, 
vocabulary when she, she talked to him and she was able to do what she had set out to do, which is help her son do better in his school. Sure. She was asking a question from the point of coming from her heart. Tell me more about that. You care, you want to know. And that question says, I care, I want to know, and I want to help. Whereas why says, give me a reason. And that's kind of right. the end of it. Yeah. Totally. Totally. The questions totally are really, really key. And then following that is the active listening. So that is like the third yes. step. You really need to pay attention. And you do that really well because you, you take people's words, the language that they're using, and you use it, you turn it into your questions so that when someone refers to someone as mother, it's mother. When someone refers to someone as, uh, I don't know, mom or pop, you'll say, well, what does pop do or what does mom? You, you do that really well throughout the book. And I think that's part of, that's communicating and asking good questions, but it also goes into the fact that you had to be actively listening while you were asking questions. That's why it's a little complicated. You have to be doing all this at once to get to empathy. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, and all of this is happening so quickly because it's, it's in that moment of that conversation or that interaction that you're having, and you've got to make sure you're dismantling your judgment, asking your questions, actively listening. And yeah, you're, you're hearing the words that are being said and um, using them um, positively, but to help people feel more comfortable or know that um, you're understanding, you're tracking, um, you know, and, and in our business, especially, even if people mispronounce words, like we're not really supposed to correct them necessarily um, right you know because it, it it puts people on the defensive it makes them close up and instead you want them to be more open so yeah if somebody refers to their mom as mother not something I do but when I'm talking to them about their mother or their mom I'll say oh tell me more about your mother um, and you use use that person's language back. And active listening goes even beyond the words, too. That's the, the first step. The next one is to pay attention to the nonverbal cues, um, the things that they aren't saying, but, you know, your, the body language is indicating. Or, you know, in this time of, of so many more virtual calls, whether it's FaceTime or Zoom or Teams meetings, what's happening in the environment? that the person is in and what can you learn from that and ask questions about it. You know, do you have, for example, right at this very moment, one of my cats came up to me and started to meow. So I picked her up because <laughs> she needed attention and otherwise she was going to meow at me and disrupt our, our conversation. Um, she just wanted to that, join um, in. <laughs> she did. She's naturally curious and loving. I love cats. Um, Hello, cats. Oh, good. Good. We have three, so there's never, uh, never a lack of cat uh, in in the office here. Um, or a dull moment. I had three at one time too. Oh my goodness, it was crazy. <laughs> the, the thing I realized, I'll, I'll digress for a second. The thing I realized about having three cats is that um, you only have two eyes. And so you can't keep track of all three cats at once. There's always this, where's the other one? Um, 
Why do you want to? Oh, yeah. 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 So if you were on a, like a video call, back to the, what I was saying about active listening, if you were on a video call with me and, you know, you saw that my cat jumped up onto the desk or maybe I had kids and there was a kid doing cartwheels in the background, you want to listen to that. You want to pay attention to it so because it helps you know, like, hey, do you, do you tell me what's going on. Do you need to deal with that child doing cartwheels or um, what else is happening? Like all of that nonverbal information speaks volumes. Um, and then I ultimately also write there's a, a story uh, chapter in the book called The Ghost in the Room, which was about picking up on the things that you just sense. Your, you know, trust your intuition, which I think so many people um, ignore. And use your intuition. Like what are the things you're sensing from somebody that, you know, maybe does need to get unpacked or addressed? Um, and, and go there, follow it. I think that that's important too. And all of those things put together, you know, bring you to a point where there's a trust that's being built between you and the other person. And that right there, that trust shows the empathy and, and things can, now you can come to the place of where there's an understanding and you can come to solutions. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and it's all of those little acts of showing that you care, that you're listening, you're paying attention, the way that you're asking the questions, um, you know, that you're kind of leaning in, if you would, to what the other person is saying, and that you're engaged. It's a, it's a to yeah. me, it's kind of like a common courtesy or respect that you would give somebody else. And whether it's the clerk at the grocery store or your best friend across the street or a loved one. Yep, can be a complete stranger. It is all about the courtesy and, and what you're giving that other person. That's what we need to put out there so that people, because nobody knows what's going on in somebody else's life. So just the kindness that you can extend can change their day and change yours too. You know, it lifts your vibration yeah. when you're kind. And when you see a smile come back, you know, oh, that hit home with them. Yay. You know, I hit a home run. And, and that's a really yeah. good feeling. Yeah. I, I want to go back for a second to that 40% decline in empathy that was happening with yeah. college students, okay? There's also 90%, and I don't know the difference between a Gen Z or a Gen Xer or an LMNOP, or I have no idea, okay? I don't know what these people are. I don't know their age groups. But why 90% of Gen Zers are far more likely to stay at an empathetic employer? They must not be part of that 40% decline in empathy in college students. They must be the next generation. Am I right? Yeah, the, um, there's part, yeah, well, they are definitely that next generation. I mean, they are, they, the millennials were the last sort of cohort, if you would, and that study followed probably millennials, or not, boomers, Gen X, and millennials, that the University of Michigan study between 1979 to 2009. Gen Z, okay. so that's anybody that's kind of under 26 right now. So let's say probably 10 to 26 years old. Um, Gen Z, they are very different um, in, in some ways. I mean, there's, there's still human values that they, they ascribe to and life stage effects that they have. But Gen Z is the first true uh, minority-majority um, uh, generation that we have, meaning um, – there's no one majority ethnicity or race. It's all the minorities making and multiracial individuals making up 
the, the whole community. Nobody has more than 50%. Um, and that changes sure. the dynamic of the way that we're interacting sure. with each other. And, and they are very sensitive and aware of that, and they're aware of their place in the world. And so while a lot of people will want their employer to be empathetic with them and to work and be in an empathetic workplace, Gen Z was higher than the other generations um, uh, in terms of that. So they hit, they hit 90%. I think some of the others are in high 70s or, or low 80s because who wants to work in a place where you know, they treat you like shit? No one. Um, right. But right. truly having empathy and understanding me and, you know, they may not uh, – um, you may not go all the way to bare minimum Monday, but still having an organization that gets who I am and how I need to show up and and to do my best, I'm going to be more loyal to them. And so that's what that data point was was reflecting. Okay. Well, that's good to know because sometimes I think – with the employers, and I can understand this, CEOs, I think the stat was like 79% of CEOs admit to um, not being able to balance empathy with seeming unworthy of respect. So they're looking at that saying, okay, you know, these people, they they want empathy and everything, but I'm feeling like I'm being disrespected or whatever it is. I get that because of the way sometimes, and I've heard too many instances where it's, oh, poor me, I need to be treated more gently because I can't do this, that, or the other thing, whatever it is. And yet you went and you applied for that job and you know what the job is and you were hired and now you're looking for what seems like to the employer special treatment. Well, and there's – I was just having a conversation about this. I have a – part of a LinkedIn group, we call ourselves the Empathy Super Friends, and a throwback to that um, fun 1970s cartoon. Um, But we're all professionals working in the empathy space and activists in our own way. And we were talking about this very thing where um, there is a tension for CEOs or any leader, just a manager, really, where you want to have empathy, but you still have to meet the needs of the business. And, and it's one of the misconceptions people have. Having empathy does not mean that you become a doormat and people walk all over you. It just is another data point that you use in your communication. So in that example you gave, of the person wanting special uh, dispensation or something for that job that they really shouldn't be in, you can have empathy with that and say, I can see where this is difficult. However, this is the job that we have. So let's right. work together and find another job for you, or maybe it's outside of the organization. and Maybe an exit is what's required. Um, but you can do it empathetically, and that means reflecting that you understand where that person is coming from as you're communicating with them. It doesn't mean that you let their way be the way. It's just another data point that you can then inform in your communication, decision-making, all the things. And I think that that's, that's true, but I find that it's more difficult for older employers because of what was referred to and still is, such a strict work ethic because yeah. younger people are referred to as not having a work ethic. That's how it appears. You don't want to work. You just want a paycheck. You don't want to work with the other team. I've worked with individuals in companies where one, 
person is saying, well, that I do my job and I hand it off. Okay, but what if somebody calls and they need help? Well, that's their job. Okay, I didn't work like that. We worked where we said, huh, okay, let me go. I passed it on and see what they're doing. And you try to get the job done. You work together as teams throughout the company. It, it's been far too many people that I've seen where that is not the case, where it's, nope, my job's done. I, I've only done what I had to do. That right there is bare minimum. They don't take initiative. They don't necessarily uh, assist in a way to help the customer or whoever it is that they're talking to to get the job done. I've seen it in businesses with computer programming. Everybody's passing everything off to the other person, and it's nobody's fault. Instead of working together and listening to the person who is in the older generation, has been there for a while, understands how the company did work, but now there's so many new people in, there's, it's, it's starting to work in a different way, and the older person doesn't know how to handle it because that's not what we did. We all worked together. And the younger people are like, why are you upset at me? I did my job. It makes it very difficult right. for the employer, very difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there's, you know, there's a challenge because in this, you know, where we currently are with the return to office and that tug of war that's yeah. happening with employees and then this, you know, the way, the, you know, I, re I remember I was at a conference, Scott, 17 years ago and or 18 years ago now, and everybody was sitting around talking about, like, have you worked with a millennial? Uh, because millennials were just entering the workforce. Right. and all the Gen X and boomers are aghast because, oh, my God, they're so different. And now the same thing is happening. And it's kind of ironic because it's a millennial talking about Gen Z and have you worked with them? <laughs> um, and so it's like, yeah, uh -huh, what goes around comes around. Um, but you have to, to – every organization needs to work on their culture and having an empathetic culture and having – you know, the psychological safety is a big thing people are talking about now where it's okay to speak up and to, you know, share. And managers need to be fostering that sense of teamwork. And it isn't just, oh, each one, each person is doing their own little job and that's it. It's that we're all together in this and together we will make a better organization. Um, but that's the work that the managers, the leaders, the elders of the organization need to be actively fostering and modeling that behavior as well. Um, because otherwise, yeah, it, it, you end up with all these siloed individual contributors and the company's not going to move very far. No, and, and that's not, and even though you have a group of people who are older and wiser, as it were, and you've got these younger people they're allowing the silo effect to happen, and it's not, it's not working out. It's just, I've heard this too many times. It's not working out. And, and then you have the people in the mid-range where, you know, I'm going to say between 35 and, say, 50. And I uh -huh. remember having a woman come in, and she was complaining that her boss didn't understand her. She couldn't get her job done and all this other stuff. And I had to take her phone away from her because she was constantly on it, and I asked her to make sure – that over the next two weeks before she comes back in, write down every single time at work that you check anything of yours that's personal on any gadget you have or that is at the office. And she did. And when she came in, I asked her how she did. And she said two and a half hours. And I said, oh, I expected it to be more than that. Two and a half hours in two weeks, that's not bad. She said, no, two and a half hours a day. And I said, oh, my God. And she said, what? And I, I don't pull punches. And I said to her, 
you're working until noon on Thursday, and then Thursday afternoon and Friday, you're not working for this man at all. You're stealing. And she said, I'm not a thief. And I said, oh, but you are. You absolutely are. I would, I would fire you. I, w- I will not put up with anybody working 40-hour a week and, and taking 12 of it away. That's not right. That's not right. It took yeah. over a year. I think it was like a year and a half to wean her off of all of her stuff, her social media. So I have to wonder, you know, if somebody goes to their boss and then comes to a therapist and says, you know, he's not being empathetic and he doesn't understand, and then they divulge all that information, you know, the guy has a right to not understand. He probably knew part of what was going on. And she told me, you can't tell him, and I can't. I cannot legally talk to the man. But I couldn't right, say to him, right, hey, have yeah. you ever checked? Have you ever checked out your people to see how many of how long they're on their gadgets? I could have said that, but I didn't. I wanted to get her off of the stuff. And I think it makes it difficult when they see people, you know, you walk by a desk and you see Facebook is up or, or Twitter or LinkedIn or Instagram or Pinterest. I know all these words. I don't do social media. I just, I just stay away. I don't even text. I don't know how. I just don't do it. And I'm just like, okay, I'm not going to take part in this because it's so overwhelming. And I can understand if a boss walks by, maybe he doesn't know, he's not going to say anything. But we're talking about the big wig of the company. And, you know, you have to wonder how much is it of it is really to be empathetic to these people and how much is it of these people taking advantage and expecting people to understand them and be empathetic when really it's not warranted. It's on the part of the person who's looking for the empathy to understand when they deserve it as well. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yes, there's a shadow side to empathy where people take advantage of that. And and people have been taking advantage of others for a long time. But in this particular situation, yeah, they're trying to say, oh, he just doesn't understand me. Well, you know, and empathy is also a two-way street. Even though I talk about a roundabout, like there's traffic coming in from all directions. So (laughs) that employee is not having much empathy with his or her manager uh, or his or her organization, and realizing, yeah, like, she give back, you know, tw- what is 12 hours out of 40, 20% of their 25% of your salary, because you're not working. You can rent the desk. Well, that'll cost you an extra $500 a week to have in this nice, yeah. cushy place to sit. <laughs> like, you know, and, and that's the thing as managers, like, don't be afraid to ask your employees to have empathy with you or the organization as well and understand where the organization is coming from. That, hey, we've hired you to do a job. We're paying you 40 hours a week. We expect you to work for, you know, 40 hours a week minus, you know, lunches and, you know, 15-minute bio breaks twice a day or whatever it is. Um, They need to, people need to understand that. And I think there's Definitely, I don't know what's going on with um, kids today. I don't know how kids are getting (laughs) exposed into the workplace, Um, and I don't want to make huge generalizations, but you do hear stories about um, a lot of teenagers don't get summer jobs anymore, and I think that's where we Mm -hmm. learn the value of, like, hard work and putting in the hours. And, you know, typically that was manual labor, whether it was, you know, at fast food, or I was twirling a whistle on the lifeguard stand. Um, okay. You had to work the hours that, that you know, if you were going to get paid. And I think the really valuable lessons in that. Yes, because you you no longer are being coddled by the parent giving you everything. Because a lot of parents are, you know, my child is my friend. Not until they're after like 
the age of like 21 or 25, then they can be your friend. But before that, you have to be the disciplinarian. You have to be the one to show them how to grow up and be people that other people are going to like and how to serve. And serving doesn't mean being a slave to other people. It means serving humanity well by just being kind and compassionate and caring and empathetic. And sometimes that doesn't come across and they think there's a sense of entitlement that, well, I should just be able to have this. No, no, you have to earn it. You know, you can't, I couldn't get a kid to shovel a driveway in my neighborhood if I wanted to. They just are not interested. They're not going to do it. It's too much work. No matter what you paid them, they'd say, no, there aren't. Yeah. It's sad. (laughs) Yeah. It it, it is. It is. And that means that the parents are probably, I mean, those kids are privileged that they're in a place where they're able to get more money and and the money is just kind of coming to them or they're getting the things that they want. And so they're not appreciating the value of of working for something and and then using that money to buy stuff or whatever, save it even. Um, Right. Yeah. It's... it's a problem that, into there. I was just going to, and that, that just leads into a whole financial worry where they don't know how to save money, what to do with money, how to treat money, how to respect money. There's a certain respect that goes with money. You can't just, you know, earn it and spend it and, earn, and, and expect it, it to just funnel in. It's not a never-ending well. Your parents are not a never-ending well, and you have to earn that money and know how to balance and know how to budget and they're not learning those skills they're just not it's it's really a shame to see this happening where it's the children who are privileged aren't necessarily learning that and the children and it seems to be a one extreme to the other and the other children are the children who are underprivileged and they don't know anything about that because it's just not there it's just no they don't even know where the next meal is coming from yeah they they have very real worries um yeah. In those situations. Yeah, and this is yeah. this is uh, just to kind of finish off of the book. Like the next, the fourth step is is integrating into understanding and appreciating mm-hmm. that other people have different points of view or life experiences, and and to to make room in your head to be curious about it, not to think that one of the, the concerns people have around empathy is that well, if I understand their point of view, I'm giving up my own, and that's not the case. Um, But actually, that it's about getting curious about it and asking the questions. And, you know, so the the example you were giving about the social media addicted uh, employee, Uh you know, it's that person and their manager, like, be curious about each other, find out what's going on, and, okay, now how can we work together to, to reach a, a better situation or, or outcome? It doesn't mean you have to say, oh, yeah, everybody's going to do social media now. It means that you want to be curious and you want to turn things around and continue to ask and make room in your head. And, um, you know, it, 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 that step in integrating into understanding is so critical for, you know, the big sort of societal issues that we've got down to like, well, what flavor of ice cream are we going to share tonight? Cause we only have money for one scoop. Um, you, right. you need to be curious and make room that, Hey, people have different opinions. That's okay. Let's be curious about it so that we can move forward, get to empathy and, and work to compromise. And that's the whole thing. When you, you will have much better relationships when you learn to compromise and do that. You know, ask the questions and 
first of all, don't judge, ask the questions, actively listen, come to an understanding, and really the compromise after that of how things can work. To be a team player instead of just, I want it my way, my way is the highway, you know? Uh, Because I think people just don't realize, you know, it's something that you're right when you say in your book, solving the empathy crisis. And it is one conversation at a time. But think of all the people in the world. If everybody just had one conversation at a time and it was, it was a good one with questions and it was, you know, coming from your heart with empathy, then you would solve the crisis in jig time because, you know, everybody talks to everybody every day. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and, it's a, and it's a choice. Uh, it's a choice to make. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very fond of a quote from Maya Angelou where she said she believed that we all had empathy. We may not have the courage to display it. And that's what this is about is having the courage. And it's not the courage to go run into a burning building and save lives. It's just small doses of courage to treat people differently, approach it with kindness, approach it trying to understand and have empathy with other people. And you know, yeah, it is one conversation at a time. But to your point, if everyone has that conversation, the world would be a much better place. Absolutely, it would. Oh, my goodness. What a great way to end this topic. I am going to ask you one more question. It's probably going to get me in trouble, but I don't care. I'll ask it. <laughs> We're supposed to ask questions. I, I am familiar with a term called an empath. And there is a, uh, a well-known person who took this word empath, branded it, and then all of a sudden, at the beginning of, I don't know, like 2006, 7, 8, whenever it was, people started saying they were indeed an empath. And, you know, being an empath is not a thing, at least not in any verifiable scientific sense. It's, it's not a term that's used by any respected bodies or organizations, nor in any clinical setting, but people are taking the word empath and saying they are an empath, and from what I have seen and, and the psychologists that I talk to and the psychiatrists that, that, I, that I do Zoom calls with and everything, we, we've talked about this over and over and over again, and it, one of two things is happening. The person who's the empath is either trying to be, show you that they're more evolved or elevated or superior to you, and they're an empath because they can sense everyone's feelings, or they're playing the victim and they are saying, you have to treat me very gently because I'm an empath. So you can't be a sad, you can't be a happy, you can have those feelings. You can have the feelings of being right. empathic or empathetic, but you can't be an empath. That wasn't, this is why I liked your book. You didn't talk about empaths at all, which is great. But did that come into play at all in any of the research that you had done? Or, or was that just like, no, I'm not dealing with it because I know it's not real? Um, yeah, I, I made a conscious decision in the book to focus on cognitive empathy and more perspective-taking yes. because I felt like that's the one that's more practical in our day-to-day lives. You know, we're not necessarily going to feel the feelings of the checkout clerk at the local, you know, supermarket, but we want to understand, you know, you ask them, hey, how's your day going? And they tell you, oh, at the end of my eight-hour eight, eight hour shift, I've been on my feet all day. You're like, ooh, I can imagine that hurts. Like, you know, perspective taking. Yeah. Empathy and being an empath, it has come up more, and I get the question more uh, when I'm giving uh, presentations, and I do acknowledge and recognize that there are people that might be highly sensitive people and may be feeling things a bit more 
than others. And I think that that's actually a gift. I don't know about the true, you know, an empath to me is like this sort of spiritual witch person that's really truly feeling and sensing an otherworldly and a comic book character. Um, but I think a highly sensitive person is just somebody that's feeling things more and taking more of it on. And so I do talk to them about how, hey, you know, there are these five steps to empathy, and you've got to understand all of those because it's the, the tools in the moment. But if you're a highly sensitive person, it's about not being a bucket where you're just storing all of this energy that you're picking up on. It's that you're, let, you're a sieve and you're letting it pass. And, and so you're setting boundaries on what you're going to take in and hold on to versus what you're going to let go and doing the self-care to kind of recharge your batteries. So I don't know well, that's a, that I have a – That's a great way to present it to yeah. people. You know, it really is because at least that way you're letting them know that, you know, you have to set the boundaries. And you, you, it's impossible to take on every – what I've noticed with people who are self-proclaimed empaths is that it's always the negative. I'm taking off all this negative energy. I'm taking it all on. I can't help it. There, if you are truly an empath, like say, what is her name, Deanna Troy from – from Star Trek, the next generation yeah. or something, right? From Star you know, Trek or uh, it, a yeah. Raven from the teen Titans is the other one that comes yeah. up for me. Yeah. You would feel all the emotions, including the happy ones. And you would be bouncing from way high to way low. And there's your manic, right? You now you're manic. Yeah. So that's, that's not even being an empath. <laughs> you're manic at that point. So, you know, for people to do that, it's like, why do you always, I asked somebody once, I said, well, you say you're an empath, but you're always working on the negative. You never take on the other. So know this now, spoiler alert, you are not an empath. There is no such thing. You know, you need to put on your big girl thong and act like an adult. That's what you are. And, you know, yeah. she, she understood it and she, you know, it's just, yeah, I like to get people's take on that because it seems to me that it's something that was promoted in a way that people said, oh, I want to be that. And then I can be better than somebody else or I can use it as an excuse. And it's so sad to see that related to such a beautiful thing as being empathetic and having empathy for others. And, and I think that's yeah. where there's a lot of confusion, you know? I, I totally agree. And I think certain people want it to be a certain way. And so they, they've kind of glommed onto it where they may just be highly sensitive and, and that's okay. And that can be a beautiful thing, but you're not just it's not just one side of the rainbow you know you're not just doing yeah. the negative emotions I, I totally i like how you explained that yeah because that, that that typically is what it is when because they don't even understand what being an empath is you know it's like well you can't be an empath because you can't be a thing are you a light bulb you know or, or you know <laughs> you can't do that right. you, can't, you can't be a feeling you can have a feeling but you can't be it so, oh, my God, we're almost out of time, Rob. And I have to thank you so much for being on the show. I mean, it's been wonderful. This was a great discussion. I appreciate you being here. But before we go, I'd like you to tell our listeners how they can learn more about you and your work and where they can purchase your book. Tell me more about that, Solving the Empathy Crisis, One Conversation at a Time. Yes, thank you. Um, and it has been awesome being here. I've loved this conversation. Um, so, uh, people can find me on Instagram at Empathy Activist. Um, they can also find me on Facebook if they search Rob Bolte, Empathy Activist. They can also visit the website 5, and that's the number 5, steps to empathy.com. 5 steps to empathy.com. The book is available um, on Amazon and wherever they buy, uh, buy books or at their local library. If they don't have a copy in the store, they can always order it. 
I also narrated the audiobook, which is on Audible and the other audiobook platforms uh, that people can can pick up and, and listen to as well. And I hope they do uh, give it a, a check it out and, and be entertained as, as others have been. Well, and be entertained, but in a way that's really going to teach you something. You'll learn things that you didn't know before. I, could, I can see it in the book. You know, I'm reading it and I'm going, yeah, okay, people don't get this part. This is really interesting. I like the way he's wording this. So it's, very, it's not academic. I don't want anybody to think it's academic. It's not. It's really interesting because, as I said at the beginning of the show, the stories are very relatable. And you'll be able to think of something that happened in your life, which, which may make you laugh and think, oh, I remember I did that. Yeah, that was a mistake. <laughs> you know? So it really is it's a, great, it's a great way to learn. And, it's, and you're learning something good, and then you can turn around and teach it to the younger people in your life, however old they are. It's been such a pleasure having you, Rob. If you just hold on for a couple of minutes, and, and then I'll speak to you as soon as I finish, uh, finish putting this show out to my listeners. Is that okay? Awesome. Yes, thank you, Sheila. This has been lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, listeners, we need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on From the Heart Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a most challenging and and constantly changing world, and that's why I have the guests that I do, to keep you prized so you won't get lost in the dross of life. On behalf of everyone here at From the Heart Radio, I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next week for another great show right here on From the Heart Radio. Please also check out Soji Huggles Children's Foundation. Every dollar of every donation directly supports children in need 100%. We're run solely by volunteers. There are no salaries, stipends, or compensations of any kind to anyone. Every penny goes toward underprivileged children, and right now we're helping subsidize the cost of mental health sessions for children who might not otherwise receive this much-needed therapy. So if you don't have your mental health, you can't learn and you can't live well at all. It's vitally important, and children need this. We're seeing it more and more. They're living in a very challenging world, so let's help them. Please follow us on Twitter at Soji Huggles. While you're in your social media accounts, please be sure to like us on Facebook, Soji Huggles Children's Foundation. We are going to leave you with our From the Heart Radio's Thought for the Week. It is from Simon Baron Cohen, and he says, Empathy is a skill like any other human skill. If you get a chance to practice, you can get better at it. And as a side note, I would like to add, you get the chance every time you interact with another person. So we all have the opportunity to practice this across the board every single day. I am your host, T-Love, here at From the Heart Radio, intending you and yours a most enjoyable week. Remember, living from your heart is quite easy. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well.